Our series now brings us to chapter 8 of the book of Hebrews in the series on sin and judgment. Hebrews 8, verse 1. Now, the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Hence, it is necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. Just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle, for, see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises." For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. For finding fault with them, he says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, For they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them upon their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen, and everyone his neighbor, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. When he said, A new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. Amen. The Apostle is continuing his argument that started in chapter 5 in relation to Christ being the superior and supreme high priest. He is, is better than any earthly priest. He is better than the, anyone in the tribe of Levi or anyone in the family of Aaron. He's even superior to Moses and all the prophets. He is superior to Abraham and all the other patriarchs. He is the only high priest who can and does sufficiently cover for our sins, mediate for our sins. And he does so by his own death and resurrection. He pays for our sins. He was delivered up because of our transgressions, and he was raised because of our justification. Romans 4, 25. This argument 
is not a superficial argument. What he's presenting here with detailed evidence and very careful logic and use of Scripture is vitally important to understand in relation to how our sins are actually paid. If we do not understand how our sins are actually paid, then we have a false gospel. We have a different gospel. We have an accursed gospel. The gospel we believe is not the true gospel. If we don't understand why Jesus came into the world and what he accomplished when he carried out the high priestly role appointed to him by God the Father. We must understand that. If we do not understand it, then we are still dead in trespasses and sins. We are still in our sins, and we shall die in our sins. Ephesians 2.1, John 8.24. This is the gravity of what we are learning here. It is a matter of sin. And if we don't understand how our sins are truly forgiven, then we cannot be saved. We cannot have any salvation. We will be judged by the Lord. That's the main issue at hand. Now, related to that issue is the way that interpreters throughout the centuries have understood the Old Testament and the New Testament. They have misunderstood the relationship between the two Testaments, Old and New. They have, most of them, have distorted this relationship. In the early days or early decades after the death of the last apostle, there was a man in about A.D. 150 by the name of Marcion. He claimed to be a Christian and a Christian pastor. However, he had many, many heresies and many, many severe heresies. Fundamentally, he distorted the relationship between the two testaments. Because he distorted the relationship between the two testaments, he is known by historians and theologians as one who is notorious for distorting the true gospel. Marcion. However, over the centuries, and even in our day, there is a moderate form of Marcionism. Let's just say 50% Marcionism, but it's 50% poison, 50% heresy. And that is contained in a movement among many churches and denominations called dispensationalism. Dispensationalism or trans-dispensationalism, same thing basically. Dispensationalism teaches that there were different periods in history, there are different periods in history, and even in the future, and in these different periods or silos of time, God expects people to believe different things in order to be forgiven of sins to go to heaven. In the Old Testament, there are several periods. In the New Testament, as well. There are seven or eight periods of time throughout history, and God expects in those different seven or eight periods of time for people to believe in different things in order to be saved. In other words, they don't have to believe 
in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for their forgiveness of sins and eternal life. In the Old Testament, they could believe in different things. In the period of Moses, they had to believe that the animal sacrifices forgave them. The animal sacrifices were the basis of their redemption. That's how many believe the sacrificial system instituted by Moses for the nation of Israel was the means by which Israel could be saved from their sins. They had no knowledge or very little knowledge of the coming Christ, and they certainly did not, according to dispensationalism, they certainly did not believe in the coming death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for their forgiveness of sins and eternal life. That is a heresy that is worthy of eternal fire because they are demoting the work of Christ. They are demoting the purposes of God the Father, demoting and making less glorious the only means of human redemption. That's what they're doing. And they are trusting in somebody else or something else, something else such as animals to save them from eternal destruction. They're trusting in animals to save them from eternal destruction. In our period, there are many people who have belief in good works. They think that their good works will save them. Yes, we believe in Christ, but it's our, really our good works that save us. Good works earn us heaven. This is the common belief. A little bit of knowledge of Jesus or no knowledge of Jesus, it doesn't matter. Whether in Christianity or outside of Christianity, all we need to do is make sure we are circumspect, we are upright people, we are good citizens, and that's all God expects, and then we'll go to heaven. No need to believe in Jesus Christ that he died and rose again for our salvation. This is a common belief. People trust their own goodness, their own good works, their own will, their own free will to choose God whenever they feel like it. And we know, or they say, we know everybody's going to heaven. That is not true. The apostle is dealing with Jewish people who think that way, who think that whatever goodness they have and whatever animals they offer, then God is going to accept them, receive them, grant them entrance into heaven. That's what they believe. That's what they believed in the time of the apostle in the book of Hebrews, and that's what they believe even today. They trust in good works adherence as much as possible they can to what the Bible says, and then they'll get to heaven. This is common. It's common not only among Jews, but it's also common among Gentiles. In different ways, we think our goodness is good enough. We're not so bad. We're not so evil. Jesus doesn't have to die. But since he did die, I'll believe that too. And I'll add Jesus to whatever I'm doing. Yet that's not the way. Let's see how the Apostle argues that there is one way, and there has always been one way, and that one way is in Christ. Chapter 8, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 
1. Hebrews 8, 1. Now, the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. What is his main point? His main point is that we have such a high priest, such a distinct, such a unique, such a superior high priest who is far beyond any Levitical priest, any Aaronic priest. He is superior to them. This is what he's been arguing since chapter 5, 5, 6, and especially in chapter 7, which we saw last time. In chapter 7, he has exalted Christ because Christ is superior to any in the Levitical tribe, anyone, and any system that was commissioned to the Levitical tribe in the period of Moses. He says that's the kind of high priest we have, such a high priest, who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. He's saying that this high priest is actually reigning at the right hand of God the Father. This phrase, the majesty in the heavens, is another way of referring to the royal kingly glory of God the Father. He mentioned this in another way in chapter 1, verse 3. He sat down, chapter 1, verse 3. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Also in 2 Peter 1, 2 Peter 1, verse 17, 117. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. The majesty in the heavens is God the Father. None of the earthly high priests, after they died, are sitting at the right hand of God the Father. Only this one. After he ascended into heaven, he sat down at the right hand of God the Father. That itself should show that he was sent for a purpose, he returned to heaven for a purpose, and now he's reigning at the right hand of the Father. If he is reigning at the right hand of God the Father, the majesty in the heavens who controls the whole universe, then his priesthood must be superior. It has to be the one that saves us. He is further described in verse 2. This is Jesus being further described in verse 2. He is a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched, not man. Jesus is a minister in the true tabernacle. By true, he means true in terms of heavenly, eternal, pure. That's the trueness of it. He doesn't mean that the earthly tabernacle was a false tabernacle, but he's talking about 
the eternal and supreme significance. There is the earthly one, and then there is the heavenly one. That's how he means this word true. He states it similarly in chapter 9. He says in chapter 9, verse 11, 9, 11, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. 923, 923-24. He says, Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. The true, ultimate, significant, the one that's related to our redemption, is in heaven. That's where Jesus entered after serving on the earth in his high priestly role. He entered into heaven. This true tabernacle in heaven, he also says in chapter 8, verse 2, is what the Lord pitched. The Lord pitched, not man. Did we notice in 9.11, he says that the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation? Because if it is in heaven... No man built it in heaven. No angels built it in heaven. If it's in heaven, it is God himself who supplied that tabernacle. The one on the earth was directed by Moses, according to the command of God, with skillful laborers to make all of the furnishings and the tents of the tabernacle. On the earth. It says in Exodus 33 7. Exodus 33 7. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, a good distance from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And it came about that everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. That simple statement, the, uh, Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp. Pitch the tent outside. Moses did it. A man did it. A human did it. The holy prophet Moses, yet he was still a man. Compared to the one that is in heaven that the Lord pitched. That is superior. If that is superior... Should we not look at it as superior? Not elevate Moses beyond what is proper, nor anyone else beyond what is proper. Further argument is in verses 3 and 4. Hebrews 8, 
verse 3. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Hence, it is necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law. If he were on earth, we've already learned, he would not be one of the priests in the temple because Jesus was not from the tribe of Levi, not from the family of Aaron. He could not and should not have any duties related to conducting the rituals of the temple. He was prohibited based on lineage, genealogy. This is the argument from chapter 7, chapter 7, 11 to 14. 7, 11 to 14. Now, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? For when the priesthood is changed of necessity, there takes place a change of law also. For the one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe, from which no one has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. He could not and would not offer any sacrifices in the temple because he was from the tribe of Judah and the family of David. Why is that significant? Because he has a different priesthood, the priesthood of Melchizedek. And that priesthood of Melchizedek has to do with eternal salvation. The priesthood that Moses instituted for the tribe of Levi and family of Aaron had to do with symbolizing the eternal priesthood of Christ. Not as the source of salvation, but as a symbol of that salvation in Christ. He says in verse 3 that every high priest on the earth, every earthly high priest, Levitical, Aaronic priest, those priests have something to offer whenever they enter the temple. Gifts and sacrifices. But what was it that Christ had to offer? According to verse 3, Hence it is necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. This high priest is our high priest, Christ. What did he have to offer? His own blood. His own body and his own blood. This he made clear in 726. 726 to 28. 726. For it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins, and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself 
For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever. They offered animals even for themselves, but Jesus offered up his own body. Chapter 10. Chapter 10. Chapter 10, verses 1 to 4. Chapter 10, verse 1. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices year by year which they offer continually, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins? But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Impossible for the blood of bulls and goats, which the regular earthly priests were offering. They don't provide salvation to anyone. Continue, and we go to 10.10. Hebrews 10.10 to 14. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Now, we must ask this question. If it's so obvious that the blood of an animal cannot save, did the Christians of the Old Testament understand that the blood of animals did not save them? Or is this a new teaching in Hebrews 8, a new and a strange teaching, an addition? Did they understand in the Old Testament that the blood of animals could not save them? Well, let's go to one passage for a preliminary answer. This will be found in Psalm 49. Psalm 49, 7 to 9. Psalm 49, 7. The Psalms were written in the days of David, 1000 BC. And Moses, he instituted the tabernacle and the ritual system in 1400 to 1500 BC. That means that four to 500 years later, this statement is made by the inspired prophet, inspired by the Holy Spirit. He says this, 49.7. 
No man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of his soul is costly, and he should cease trying forever that he should live on eternally, that he should not undergo decay. Here the holy prophet teaches that no man can by any means redeem his brother. No man can. If no man can by any means, by his own blood, redeem the blood of a brother, another man, if that is impossible for one man to redeem another man for his, that other man's eternal salvation, what makes us think that the blood of an animal is sufficient to save anybody's soul? The blood of an animal cannot. Why? The blood of an animal is less than the blood of a man. Men, according to Genesis 1, 26 to 27, were created in the image and likeness of God. James 3, 9 also teaches us that we are created in the likeness of God. Genesis 1, 26 to 27, and James 3, 9. Men are created in the image and likeness of God, but no scripture comes close to ever asserting that animals are created in the image of God. They don't have souls. They have, a, they have breath, they have animation, but they don't have souls like we do. Genesis 1.26 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. No animals, no insects, no trees, no rocks, are created in the image of God. Only humans are, male and female, both, in the image of God. So if we have the image of God and we are superior to the lesser creatures, and we as superiors to the lesser creatures, and an animal is lesser than we are, if another man can't redeem a man, what makes us think or what made the Old Testament People think that an animal could. The saints of the Old Testament did not believe that. There's no way they believe that. Psalm 49 says they didn't believe it. No man can by any means redeem his brother. It's impossible for that to happen. Therefore, they had to be looking forward to the coming of the death and resurrection of Christ. It had to be that way. We'll see more evidence of that in a moment. Now, back to Hebrews 8. We've come to verse 5. Hebrews 8, 5. After explaining what the earthly priests, Levitical priests do, it says this in verse 5. Who serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. 
He's already asserted so in verse 2, because the true tabernacle, the heavenly tabernacle, is where Christ entered. So that means that the earthly Levitical priests, they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. He means that what they were doing on the earth was a representation, was an illustration, was a symbol, was a copy, was a shadow, was a type of heavenly, eternal realities. Chapter 9, Hebrews 9, Hebrews 9, verse 8. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing. Verse 9, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. Verse 10, since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. Verse 8, signifying. Verse 9, a symbol. And now verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. 9.23 Therefore it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Chapter 10, Hebrews 10, verse 1. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices year by year which they offer continually make perfect those who draw near. Here in Scripture, he's using these various synonyms to tell us, basically, the sacrificial system, the ritual system, the ceremonial system of the Mosaic Covenant was serving to represent or to symbolize symbolize, to signify, and to be a shadow and copy of the eternal realities in Christ. He says it repeatedly. The question we must ask, remember in our introduction we said, just as in the days of the Apostle, also in the Old Testament period, And even today, people will say, yes, okay, from Pentecost until the return of Christ, or from Pentecost until the tribulation, or Pentecost until the rapture, the age of grace. In this period, we preach Christ and the death of Christ. This is the way to be saved. 
But later, in the future, that's not the way. And in the past, before the day of Pentecost, from the time of Adam and Genesis, they were saved in different ways. Dispensationalism. Differently, they were saved. Not by believing in Christ. But this is the problem, this is the heresy that the apostle is addressing right here. After saying, who serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, and we just showed from chapters 9 and 10, he repeats it again and again, that fact. He then takes us back to Moses. Here is the important question. Did Moses know that the sacrifices were representative sacrifices? Did Moses know that the blood of animals signified the blood of Christ? Did Moses not only know, but did he teach it to the people? That is the question. And if Moses knew and he taught the people, then Moses was believing in the coming death of Christ. That Moses understood the coming Christ and that he would die. Let's pause for a moment and go to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11, 24 to 26. Hebrews 11, 24 to 26. By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Our apostle says that Moses had faith, but it wasn't vague faith, it wasn't general faith, it wasn't just faith in one God or the God of Israel or something unique about him, him as creator, nor even faith in animals to take away his sins. It says here, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches. What would the reproach of Christ be? The reproach of Christ would not be his resurrection. That's glorious. It's not a reproach. The reproach of Christ would not be his ascension. That's glorious. It's not a reproach. His session, his seated at the right hand of the Father, that would not be a reproachful thing. That's a glorious thing. He's at the right hand of the Father. His return would not be a reproachful thing. That's a glorious thing. It's a glorious return. He says he's going to return in the glory of the Father with the holy angels. So what is the reproach of Christ? Chapter 13, Hebrews 13 tells us. Chapter 13, explicitly he tells us 13, 12, 13, 12, to 14, 13, 12. Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Hence, let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. It says that we are supposed to also bear his reproach outside the camp. 
as he suffered outside the gate of the city, what does that mean? He died there. It's talking about his death, his sacrifice for our sins, or the crucifixion. That's what he's talking about. That's the reproach of Christ, and we are also supposed to bear his reproach, just like Moses bore his reproach, just as he taught us to do so in Luke 9.23. If any man wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. It's the same. Moses took up the cross of Christ at the cost of the honor and glory of being royalty, the son of Pharaoh's daughter, right? He gave all that up to be humiliated, to be mocked and ridiculed, and then to have to deal with the rebellious people of Israel for 40 years, ungrateful to God and ungrateful to him. He had to bear listening to them for 40 years. So he had much reproach because he believed in the reproach of Christ, the death of Christ. Now back to 8 verse 5. Chapter 8 verse 5. He now tells us. It's not just that the apostle is telling his readers and also us that the Levitical priests were serving a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. He says Moses knew this and Moses taught the people. Verse 5. Just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle. Moses was also told he was warned by God. And what is it that God told him? See, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. It says here, It's a warning because he could not deviate in any way. If he deviated, deviation equaled death, just like it did for the two sons of Aaron. Any deviation from God's word equals death, just like it did to Adam and Eve. They deviated, deviation equals death. Do not disobey. So then, that's the warning part to Moses. Here he says that Whatever Moses was to make, of course, through the skillful craftsmen that were recruited to make, but Moses is overseeing all this and directing it. It says, there's a pattern which was shown you on the mountain. Notice that word pattern. Why is it called a pattern? Just like we already read from chapters 9 and 11, or 9 and 10, 10 verse 1, just like we read there, it's a pattern of the heavenly things. It's a, the earthly was a copy and shadow of eternal heavenly truths. That's the pattern. He's quoting, notice in your Bibles, if your Bibles show the quotation, he is quoting from Exodus Chapter 25, verse 40. And who wrote Exodus 25, 40? Moses. Moses was told, and then he wrote what he was told by God. If we turn to Exodus 25, 40, 
we read it in similar words, Exodus 25:40. And we're going to take a brief journey to emphasize this point that Moses, and not only Moses, but David and Solomon, when they built the temple, David compiling the, the supplies and Solomon building it, and also Solomon through his craftsmen, built it, the temple, that they were known, they were told, they knew, and they taught the people. The fact that it's written in Scripture means that Moses knew about it and he was teaching the people. 2540. And see that you make them after the pattern for them which was shown to you on the mountain. Back up to 25 verse 9. 25 9. According to all that I am going to show you as the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furniture, just so you shall construct it. Chapter 26, 26 verse 30, 26 verse 30. Then you shall erect the tabernacle according to its plan, which you have been shown in the mountain. 27 verse 8. 27 8. That was 26 30. Now 27 verse 8. You shall make it hollow with planks as it was shown to you in the mountain. So they shall make it. The book of Numbers. The book of Numbers chapter 8. Numbers chapter 8. Numbers 8, verse 4. Numbers 8, 4. Now, this was the workmanship of the lampstand, hammered work of gold from its base to its flowers. It was hammered work, according to the pattern which the Lord had showed Moses, so he made the lampstand. That's the tabernacle, the portable temple, the tabernacle. But then what about the structure, the permanent structure, the building, the temple that was built by Solomon? Did David and Solomon know that even the temple was just a replication, just a symbol, a representation of heavenly things? Did they know that? Yes. First Kings... First Kings chapter 6, 1 Kings 6, 38. 1 Kings 6, 38. And in the eleventh year, in the month of Bull, which is the eighth month, the house was finished throughout all its parts and according to all its plans. So he was seven years in building it. That is what Solomon did. But we said David and Solomon. Did David know and did David instruct his son? Yes. First Chronicles 28. First Chronicles 28. David, he could not build it, but God permitted him to gather supplies. And that's what he did. First Chronicles 28, 
And when he's about to die, he charges his son Solomon to build the temple. And we read, 1 Chronicles 28, verse 11. 28, 11. We read 11 to 19. Then David gave to his son Solomon the plan of the porch of the temple, its buildings, its storehouses, its upper rooms, its inner rooms, and the room for the mercy seat, and the plan of all that he had in mind for the course of the house of the Lord and for all the surrounding rooms, for the storehouses of the house of God and for the storehouses of the dedicated things, also for the divisions of the priests and the Levites and for all the work of the service of the house of the Lord and for all the utensils of service in the house of the Lord, for the golden utensils, the weight of gold for all utensils for every kind of service, for the silver utensils, the weight of silver for all the utensils for every kind of service, and the weight of gold for the golden lampstands and their golden lamps, with the weight of each lampstand and its lamps, and the weight of silver for the silver lampstands, with the weight of each lampstand and its lamps, according to the use of each lampstand, and the gold by weight for the tables of showbread for each table, and silver for the silver tables, and the forks, the basins, the pitchers of pure gold, and for the golden bowls with the weight for each bowl, and for the silver bowls with the weight for each bowl, and for the altar of incense refined gold by weight, and gold for the model of the chariot, even the cherubim that spread out their wings and covered the ark of the covenant of the Lord. All this, said David, the Lord made me understand in writing by his hand upon me all the details of this pattern. Verses 11 and 12 call it a plan. And here in verse 19, he calls it a pattern. That's our word that we found elsewhere. And what else does David say when he's charging Solomon to do this, to build with all of these supplies for the furnishings of the temple? All this the Lord made me understand. Did David understand? He's saying so from his own lips. I understood what the Lord told me. Now I'm telling you. So you understand, Solomon. David was not writing blindly, nor was Moses writing blindly, ignorantly. And if that were the case, then Moses and David, two prophets of the Lord, and and for that matter, did Isaiah know in Isaiah 53 about the suffering servant, who that was? Yes, of course he knew. If Isaiah did not know, and David did not know, and Moses did not know, then God is dangling precious food in front of a hungry man whose soul is starving to death because he gives them information and they are completely oblivious to what that information means. That's not the way of the prophets. That's not the way of God to the prophets. God made them understand, as we just read. David acknowledges that. God made him understand, and then David, as a good prophet, he would teach the people. The same with Moses. Moses understood that the animals were not an end in themselves. They were just a picture 
a symbol of the coming death of Christ. They needed to believe in the coming death of Christ, not the animal. We might ask, is there another example of something like this? Yes, that Moses clearly told the people that it's a symbol or a sign. Yes, in reference to the Sabbath, in reference to the Sabbath, Exodus chapter 31, Exodus chapter 31, Exodus 31, 12, and 13, Exodus 31, 12. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, But as for you, speak to the sons of Israel, saying, You shall surely observe my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Also, he continues describing the Sabbath and what they should do. And then verse 17, 31, 17. It is a sign between me and the sons of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, but on the seventh day he ceased from labor and was refreshed. In verses 13 and 17, God, through Moses, to the people, calls the Sabbath or the Sabbaths a sign. A sign. A sign is there to signify something. Correct? A sign, a stop sign, signifies the fact that we should stop. The reality is we should stop. That's what a stop sign is. It's not just to read and to observe the colors or the shape. It is to do something. The reality is we should stop. And the reality of the Sabbath, the fact that God is both the Creator and the Redeemer. He's our Creator in verse 17. He's our Redeemer in verse 13, 31, 13, because He sanctifies us, because we are impure because of sin. So He needs to sanctify us. And in 17, He's our Creator. And this is the same in Hebrews chapter 4. He is both our Creator and Redeemer, and that's why we gather on the Lord's Day, to remember Him as Creator and Redeemer. That's just another example of a symbol or a sign. Yes, the people were told, matter-of-factly, this is a sign, this is a type, this is a shadow, this is a pattern. They were told that explicitly, and then the people would naturally ask, what do you mean, Moses? What do you mean, Isaiah? What do you mean, David? And then they would teach the people. And those who wanted to believe in the coming death of Christ for their forgiveness, they would believe. But that was only a few. Most people were entrapped and ensnared by the worries of this world, the temptations of this life, earthly enjoyments, and did not care to pursue heavenly things. That's throughout history. That's in the New Testament. That's also in our day. That's why they did not. That's why the Pharisees did not. Because they were those who loved pleasure, who loved money, and were lawless. They were lawless men. That's why they refused to believe in Christ. 
not because the Old Testament was lacking information or knowledge about the person and work of the coming Christ. No, it didn't lack anything. They lacked faith because they were too blinded and stubborn in their love of sin. Let's now continue. Chapter 8 of Hebrews 8, 6. Hebrews 8, 6. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. The more excellent ministry has to do with heavenly and eternal ministry. The better promises are promises of forgiveness of sins, heavenly existence forever, a resurrected, immortal, glorified body, being in the presence of God forever, seeing our Savior and being with Him forever, not being thrown into eternal punishment into the lake of fire. These are better promises. The promises that Israel also had had to do with whether they would receive earthly blessings in the land of Canaan, whether they would be punished by having foreign enemies invade them, whether they would be enslaved to their foreign enemies, so on. Those would be some of the other promises, which are lesser promises. But the better promises are eternal promises. Eternal life. Verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. Now, it's at this point that the superficial reader will say, Aha, you see, the law of Moses, it was no good. It was deficient. It was weak. It was not a good law. It was evil, actually, because it was too burdensome for the people. People look at it that way. Marcion did. That's what dispensationalism does, too. But the Apostle Paul says in Romans 7, Romans 7, verse 12, Romans 7, 12, So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. He says in verse 14, 7, 14, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am a flesh sold into bondage to sin. Verse 16. But if I do the very thing I do not wish to do, I agree with the law, confessing that it is good. He keeps calling it good, holy, righteous, and good. And he calls it spiritual, the law. Then what is its place? Verse 13. 7.13. Therefore did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by effecting my death through that which is good, that through the commandment sin might become utterly sinful. The law is good. The Old Testament is good. Moses, whatever he instituted was good if we understand its purpose. But the people did not. And even today, people do not. 
8, 8. Hebrews 8, 8. Hebrews 8, 8. He says, if the first covenant had been faultless, in verse 7, there would not have been an occasion for a second. But where is the fault? Verse 8 says, for finding fault with them, he says. The problem was not the holy, righteous, and good law, the law of Moses. That wasn't the problem. The problem was the fault with them. The law of Moses presents the perfection to the people. They cannot live to the, up to that perfection. Do this and you shall live. Leviticus 18.5 Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Deuteronomy 27.26 Leviticus 18.5 and Deuteronomy 27.26 Moses presents, because God told him to, present the ideal, the perfection that was necessary for the people to observe to save themselves from their sins. But they couldn't. They could not. Nobody can. They couldn't. We can't. Nobody can. Contrary to some people who believe in perfectionism. It's impossible. It's impossible. Nobody's perfect. Nobody will be perfect. Not that we live in sin, but it's impossible to attain perfection in this life. We are growing in fruit and righteousness, but not perfection. But meantime, though, the people, seeing the perfect law, the holy, righteous, and good law, they couldn't keep it, so the fault is with them, as it says in verse 8, finding fault with them. So there's a curse on them. It's impossible for them to save themselves from their sins, just as it is today. None of our good works can save us from sins. So if that's the purpose of the law of Moses, then how is it that we can be saved? Verses 8 to 12. Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Whenever the prophecies of the Old Testament are prefixed Introduced by this statement, days are coming, or in the last days, after those days, in the last time. Whenever that's mentioned, it's talking about the period of time between the first coming and the second coming of Christ. The first coming, Hebrews 1.2 says that, the first coming to the second coming of Christ. Whatever is happening in that period of time, is known in the scripture as the last days. So during the last days, a new covenant will be effective. Verse, oh, by the way, he's quoting Deuteronomy 31, 31 to 34. I'm sorry, not Deuteronomy, Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31, 31. Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. He's quoting Jeremiah, and for our information, it's important to note, Jeremiah lived in 600 B.C., about 900 to 800 years after Moses. 
That means that Jeremiah, a true prophet, is telling the people that the law of Moses is not their source of salvation. The new covenant is. Jeremiah is preaching that to the people in 600 B.C. Did you not understand that Moses was teaching this? Remember we saw that in chapter 7? Even Moses was teaching it with Melchizedek in Genesis chapter 14. Yes, God has told me to institute this Mosaic covenant, but there's a better covenant. And Melchizedek represents that back in Genesis 14 in the days of Abraham. And here it is. It's, its effect will be instituted in the days of Christ during his incarnation. Now he makes a contrast, Jeremiah does, in verse 9. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. He's saying, this covenant, this new covenant, is not like the Mosaic covenant that I established with the people through Moses when they came out of Egypt. It's not like that. It's not a covenant that says, this is what you must do perfectly to be saved. It's different. And notice again in verse 9, just like it said in verse 8, he found fault with them. Why? Because verse 9, they did not continue in the covenant because they kept breaking it. And, of course, the most obvious way we can prove that every single person is a transgressor is that we all have disobeyed our parents. And we have parents to tell us, parents, siblings, relatives, friends to tell us, oh yes, yes, you disobeyed your parents numerous times throughout your childhood. You broke the covenant. You broke it. So it's impossible. You cannot be saved by your own goodness. They did not continue. But also notice an interesting statement here, verse 9. I did not care for them. I did not care for them. People think God loves everyone equally all the time. But this, does, but this says, because they persist in sin, I did not care for them. This is a New Testament verse, Hebrews 8, 9. A New Testament verse that says, I did not care for them. Verse 10. So now, what is the new covenant? Verses 10 to 12 will explain. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them upon their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. God is going to be the author of putting his laws in our minds and hearts, which means it must be supernatural. It has to be a miracle. It has to be a wonder that God performs in our inner man, in our soul. He has to do it. It's not something man does. God does it, not man. Man has to explain it, but man is not the one who does it. The preachers don't open up the chest of people and then conduct internal surgery to the soul. That's impossible. It's ridiculous. 
That's not the way it works. So it has to be God who does it. And when God does it, then his laws are within us, and then he is our God, and then we are his people. And as a result, verse 11, they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest of them. What's he saying here? He's not saying, in verse 11, there is no need for teachers, no need for preachers. That would be absurd. That would be also a contradiction because the apostle himself is a teacher by writing this letter. He's a teacher for the people. So that's not what he means. And also in every local church, according to the books of Timothy and Titus, Timothy and Titus were preachers and teachers in their local church. And that's the way it's supposed to be. He's not saying nobody teaches, but what he's saying is the miraculous teaching that we cannot do, God does and makes the converted man knowledgeable, knowledgeable of his will, desirous to please him, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord because his law is within them. They want to. They love to, they yearn to, they long to know the will of God and then do it. That is the radical internal transformation he's talking about, that you cannot teach it to make it happen. It has to be God that does it to make it happen. We explain it, we teach it, explain it so people understand this is the way it works, but the man doesn't do it. It has to be God who draws and regenerates and grants faith, grants repentance. God has to be the one. That's what he means by this in verse 11. Jesus taught the same. John chapter 6. John chapter 6. John 6. John 6, 35 to 40. John 6, 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him may have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Continue to 44. 44 to 45. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets... And they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. In 35, he said that it was necessary to come to him. Coming to him is believing in him, according to verse 35. But how is it that anybody can believe in him or come to him? The prophets, Isaiah, he's putting two verses together. 
from Isaiah 54, 13, and our passage, Jeremiah 31, 34. Isaiah 54, 13, Jeremiah 31, 34, which is quoted in Hebrews 8. That is, that everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. That's the miraculous, secret, internal teaching of God the Father through His Holy Spirit who draws unto salvation. He draws so that they believe and then Jesus will raise them up on the last day. Only if He draws. He doesn't draw everyone, according to 637. All that the Father gives to me shall come to me. Then what's the result? 8.12, Hebrews 8.12. For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Because we believe in the death of Christ for our redemption, knowing that we cannot save ourselves, it's not Christ plus ourselves, it's Christ who produces good fruit, who produces holiness in us. When we understand that, then we understand that God has forgiven us of our sins. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8, 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5, 1. Romans 8, 1 and Romans 5, 1. This is what we now have. And also a clarification in 8.12 of Hebrews, when he says, I will remember their sins no more, some people take it to mean that it's wiped out of God's memory, as though God learns things and then forgets things, or chooses to forget things, chooses not to remember. No, no, that's impossible. God never learns anything, and He never forgets anything. When it says, I will remember their sins no more, what He means is, I will not remember their sins against them. And this is clear from Ezekiel 18.22. Ezekiel 18.22, where He uses a similar phrase, but He adds that phrase, against them. Ezekiel 18.22. That is, on the day of judgment, because we are in Christ, we've been justified by faith in Christ, He's not going to punish us. If He punished us, then He would be remembering our sins against us. But He's not going to remember our sins against us in terms of calling them up, recounting them on the day of judgment in order to punish us. He won't do that. 8.13, when he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. Why would the prophet call it a new covenant? Unless he's making the first, the old covenant, obsolete, abolishing it. Not that he's abolishing 
all morality and ethics, but he's talking about the ritual law. He's abolishing the ritual law and the sacrificial system that we don't practice anymore. Why? Because Jesus has affected by his death, shed blood, the new covenant. Because of that, no longer are animals offered for sacrifice. This is a very important chapter. As we said from the beginning, it's teaching one way of salvation only in Jesus Christ. From Genesis to Revelation, from the beginning of the world till the end of the world. From Adam until the end of the world, there's only one way. We all must believe in Jesus Christ. Not our good works, not in another man, not in some great holy man, not in animals or in anything else. Only the death of Christ. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.